Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we'll look at the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Luke 11, 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you. Though he will not get get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that it will go forth this morning with great power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Once again, we thank you for Dr. Woodbridge. We ask that you will fill him with your spirits. Uh, May he speak to us about revival in a way that will stir our hearts and challenge us and help us to see you for the great God that you are. Father, work mightily this morning. May we be transformed because we have gathered together this morning. And we are confident that this gathering is not in vain because of your presence and because of your many promises to us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you on a rather uh, cold day, but some of us. Uh, suffer up here while the pastor goes south, uh, allegedly to study, but, but possibly to uh, experience some warmth. I don't know if that's really what was going on here. I really am pleased to be here. I know a few of you, uh, Mr. Temple and uh, Mr. Evans, and, and I'm very uh, pleased to, to be with you today. Uh, a number of uh, years ago, I was taking the train down into uh, Chicago, the Metro, and we were quite a far out from Chicago. I could see the skyline. And I thought, wow, look at those, those buildings. They're pretty small. Uh, you know, I wonder if God could uh, work in great power in Chicago. And I thought, well, those buildings are small. And, and I teach uh, church history. And I know that 
1857, 1858, there was a very powerful awakening that went through Chicago and other parts of the United States. But then the train, uh, the Metra, started getting closer to the town. And as you know, it takes a big bend going into Union Station. And there's uh, the water. And I looked up at those buildings. And I said to myself, you know, do, do I really believe God could work in power in Chicago? And, and I came to the conclusion that I probably didn't. In other words, there was probably a distinction between my formal theology and my actionable theology. In other words, what I actually would pray about, what I would think about, vis-a-vis what I professed uh, in terms of regular theology, my Christian confession. And that was a pretty unsettling experience because it was like a sort of a, uh, a sense of what one really believed versus what one uh, said one believed. So then I decided, what, what do we do in this circumstance when we find a distinction between our formal theology and our actionable theology? And it began to dawn on me, and at least this is what we've been working on for several years, that it's possible that our experience of not seeing God work in great power. Now, we know God does work in power all the time. In other words, we're sustained by the Lord. We are. Uh, we know that the Lord is working in this church now. And there are the, the normal pursuit of the Christian life, God sustains it. There's no doubt about that. But the idea that God could work in a different way and work in whole towns and cities and countries, uh, that, can, some, that can, uh, can elude us. And yet, when we read Scripture, we know, unless we are, uh, sort of read Scripture a funny way, uh, that the nations are all in God's hands. And God's not intimidated by Chicago. And God's not intimidated by Cairo. In other words, there can really be a distinction, you know, between, you know, what we know theologically is right. We sing songs like our God's an awesome God. But how, how do we close the gap, if that gap exists, between what we actionably uh, believe and work with versus what our formal theology? Erwin Lutzer once said in terms of talking about personal revival, that personal revival takes place when our experience catches up with our theology, when they are in sync. And so as one started to work through this issue, I thought, well, John, what are you going to do about this? So I tried to do something about it. And here are some of the steps that, you know, personally uh, went through. Uh, first of all, I thought it was important to admit that there was a problem. You know, I, I didn't even realize, realize there was a problem. So that was uh, step number one. Uh, step number two, obviously, uh, would be to... Uh, to go to Scripture. And I went back into the Old Testament, and when you uh, go back into the Old Testament, uh, you know uh, that uh, the Israelites were commanded over and over again to have the law in front of them, particularly to read the book of Deuteronomy. And as you read the book of Deuteronomy, the, uh, the Israelites are commissioned to keep the law, keep the Word of God always in front of them. And then uh, as you go along and you know the Old Testament stories, over and over again, the Israelites who have all of this contact with God, they know they're supposed to keep the Lord before them, but they go AWL. They go AWL all the t- over and over again. And it's, 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 it's amazing how people who could know God so well could do this, but they do. And then you take a look at what the prophet's message would be to these folks, as some of you remember this. The, the prophet's message will often be, remember what God did for you. 
Remember what God did. Remember how he, he saved you. Remember all of these things. So the, context, the, the, the idea of remembrance of God's goodness and his grace uh, to the, the children of Israel, I thought, my goodness, that's, that's something we should often do as well. We should remember. So some of us can remember uh, when we were converted and we had such a love for the Lord. And if you've talked with some folks who have been recently converted, one of the things that's very interesting for them is, is to read the Word of God. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite amazing how people get a passion to read the Word of God. But then as time goes on, even for some of us who've been believers for a while, we can lose sort of that interest in the Word of God and drift away and become pretty self-sufficient without our sense of dependence upon uh, the Word of God. So the, the second thing one thought about, and one did, was go back into Scripture and to see this theme of remembrance. But there's another approach that you can take as well. And that's an approach that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones rec- recommended once. He said, you know, one of the greatest foils for the, uh, for the secular world is to see God at work. That when God is at work, that just totally bamboozles, uh, if you will, the people in the world. And yet, as it turns out, the question comes up, has God worked in such power, such power uh, that in point of fact, uh, the world was indeed challenged by what he did. Now, it turns out being a a church historian, I I thought, well, now that's getting interesting. Uh, Can we go back into the history of the church and take a look at times when God poured out his power in a remarkable way that took that became of interest uh, to to the larger world. And the point that began to emerge personally was was this. And I will try to reiterate this this right now. Uh, It is conceivable that because we do not have a sense sometimes of how God has worked in the past, our vision has been curtailed in terms of what we pray for. Because we have not seen God, say, work in great powers, at least in the sense that we're talking about it now. And that takes us to the passage that we heard this morning, where Jesus says, you know, ask and you shall receive. And then he goes on and says, and ask for the Holy Spirit. Then does it, is it possible that we have not uh, because we ask not for certain things? Is, it, is that possible? And is it possible that we ask not because at a certain level we believe not? We don't believe that God can pour out his spirit, Fox Lake, Lake County, Illinois, the United States, uh, uh, other parts of the world. And if that's the case, then that really can curtail the way we pray. So what we'd like to do this morning is, is try to give some illustrations. And you have to know that we've been working on this for a little bit of time. Uh, that is to say that there, we're going to argue there are times when God works in such great power and that when we start to have that in our DNA, to know that God has worked in power in the past, that helps us in terms of the way we pray. You say, well, does, does that really change the way people pray? Yeah, it does. It changed the way I pray. I mean, I pray, I, and I pray differently than I did about, you know, a number of years ago. I pray for Lake County. You know, I pray for Illinois. Uh, I, I pray for the United States and so forth. Does that mean I'm a great hero in prayer? No. Does it mean I pray enough? No. Uh, do I have a little wider vision? Yes. Uh, are there other people now who are getting the same vision uh, throughout the United States? Yes. Are there an awful lot of people praying for the United States right now? Yes, the, they are. So, the premise that we're going to work with, as we said, is 
do we not have in one sense because we don't ask and it's because we, we don't believe. Now you say, why is it that we don't have these stories in our mind? Just again, This is historical stuff, so you can you know, kiss goodbye and so forth. But why, 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 is, it, why is that the case? In, up until the 19th century, pastors and lay people knew the stories of God at work and great power. Pastors in the 19th century read Whitfield. They read about George Whitfield and the, the Great Awakening in the 18th century. They knew about John Wesley. They knew about Jonathan Edwards. But many of us as evangelicals, we don't know those stories any longer. And there are various reasons why that happened. Because I mean, even for some of you sitting here, you might say, well, he, he's used the word revival. I don't like that word. I can see somebody who's dressed in black, uh, sweating profusely, uh, asking for money, and so forth. And that is just what I don't like. I remember when I was a kid, and I have to say I grew up with that, that lack of feeling for revivals too. I went, when I was about nine or ten years old, I went to a service, a big tent. And there was a lot of people there who saw us, the whole thing. And the individual who was preaching said, oh, now let's have the offering. And out came of this big bucket. It looked like a Kentucky Fried bucket. It was about this big. And that bucket went around. And I said, this is amazing. I didn't know you could have offerings in Kentucky Fried Buckets with all that and so forth. So that, that was a starter. And then he preached for a little bit, and apparently the money count came back in. It wasn't sufficient. So he said, we're going to have another offering. And that bucket went around again. And I thought, I didn't know you could do that. That is amazing. So you have to realize I've come a long way from <coughs> having friendly feelings about re- revival. But if you think of the deficiency side of revival, then that may block, block us out. But what we're talking about here now is not, you know, uh, just uh, sort of concocted revivals. We're talking about God's presence. We're talking about God working in, his, in real power and renewal and so forth. And that changes things a little bit. What I'd like to do just briefly is give one illustration and, and, uh, of God working in great power and then uh, talk a little bit about the person who was involved with Jonathan Edwards, and that'll be about it. Many of us are familiar with the First Great Awakening here in the United States. And here will be an illustration of God working uh, in, uh, in power. And if I may, since it's important to do this, to have primary sources, just give some illustrations of some people living in the 18th century, uh, they were individuals caught up in the First Great Awakening. That First Great Awakening goes essentially from around uh, 1735 to around 1744. And what is it like, at least from, as people give evidence of what's going on, what's it like when God comes in real power in a town and then we're going to uh, go to a larger town, countryside, and then ultimately we'll conclude with, with an illustration of a nation. Here are some testimonies to, to what happened in the little town of Northampton, uh, Massachusetts, when Jonathan Edwards, was, who was the pastor there, uh, saw what he called a special dispensation of God's providence where God poured out his spirit. What's it like when God shows up with presence in this different sort of way? Says Edwards, a great intellectual himself. The work of God as it was carried on and the number of true saints multiplied soon made a glorious alteration in the town. So that in the spring and summer following A.D. 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love, 
nor so full of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on the account of salvation being brought unto them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn, and husbands over their wives, and wives over their husbands. The goings of God were then seen in the sanctuary. God's day was a delight, and His tabernacles were amiable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress. Others with joy and love. Others with concern for the souls of their neighbors. Edwards went on to talk about how the spread of the Holy Spirit moved from Northampton to towns up in Massachusetts. He continues, In the month of March 1735, the people in South Hadley began to be seized with deep concern about the tidings of religion, which very soon became universal. And the work of God has been very wonderful there. Not much of anything short of what it has been in proportion to the size of the place. About the same time, it began to break forth in the west part of Suffield, where it has also been very great, and it soon spread into all parts of the town. It next appeared in Sunderland, and soon overspread the town, and I believe it was for a season not less remarkable there than it was here. About the same time, it began to appear in a part of Deerfield, that's Massachusetts, called Green River, and afterwards filled the town, and there had been a glorious work there. And then Edwards continued to talk about the towns, outside of Connecticut where Northampton was in Massachusetts where the Spirit of God had gone. Now, I was talking on this topic up at Camp of the Woods up in northern New York a year or so ago and I was talking to people and there were a lot of people from Massachusetts there and I read this list and the people, some of the people were from those towns. I didn't, know what, I didn't know what towns I was reading. I didn't know Massachusetts. But they came up afterwards and said, That's, that was our town. You mean that God poured out His Spirit in Deerfield, Massachusetts? Do you mean He did so in this town as well? For these people, that was sort of a breakthrough that God could work in such power. Now, please notice that Edwards doesn't say, and the advanced team did a great job. He, he, he didn't say, you know, out there, what we did was we manipulated people out of their socks. We just, we just, uh, we just did all that sort of stuff. What he talks about is the work of the Holy Spirit in great power, moving from Northampton and other uh, towns in the Connecticut Valley and into Massachusetts and so forth. So that as Edwards evaluated this, he could not deny that this was a wonderful public work of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he very explicitly said, I need to say that it's a public event because if I'm not willing to say that, I am robbing God of his glory. In other words, when God is at work, it's very important to talk about it, not in a self-serving way, but in in, in the sense that you don't want to rob God of his glory when he does uh, what he he does. Now you say, well, Edwards, you know, Edwards was probably a biased soul. He probably made this up a little bit. Can you do a little bit better than using a Christian? Yep, I think we can. Benjamin Franklin. Now, you say, Benjamin Franklin, he probably wouldn't be a member of your church uh, in terms of his beliefs and so forth. But as some of you know, during the First Great Awakening, Franklin became a great friend of George Whitfield, who was the great pastor and preacher. 
Uh, Whitfield was a great evangelist in England and also in, the United, uh, in what became the United States. Uh, it was rumored that Whitfield could say the word Mesopotamia and people would weep. I mean, he, he was really a, a very a powerful speaker. Now, Franklin liked him. And so on one occasion, the story goes, uh, Whitfield was preaching to a crowd of 20 to 30,000 people in Philadelphia. And Franklin was on the outside of the crowd. What was he trying to do? He wasn't listening to what Whitfield was saying. What he was doing was trying to figure out how it was that uh, Whitfield was able to cast his voice that far. He was taking, making measurements and so forth. The other thing Franklin talks about is with Whitfield is that he had heard him several times and he found Whitfield was almost irresistible in terms of asking for an offering. So on this one occasion, he's listening to Whitfield and he says, I'm not going to give any money. And the offering extension is made. He's sort of like Dr. Strangelove. He finds his hand going back. He, 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 picks up, he picks up some money and then he actually borrows from a neighbor and so forth. He just couldn't resist you know, Whitfield's appeal. But what does Franklin say about Philadelphia in terms of the impact of, of, uh, uh, of Whitfield's ministry? Now, you have, now, he's an unbiased person in this regard. This is what Franklin writes in his autobiography. It was wonderful to see the change soon made by his preaching in the manners of the inhabitants. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world was growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. That's Benjamin Franklin talking about walking down the streets of Philly and hearing psalms in every street due to the work of the Spirit of God in Philadelphia. Now, what about the countryside? Here is one of the famous accounts that some of you may have heard before. There was a farmer named Nathan Cole. Nathan Cole had heard about what Whitfield had done in Philadelphia, at least what God had done in Philadelphia. And so this is a, a farmer who rushes out to the countryside to hear Whitfield. And this is what he says. Now, please, God, to send Mr. Whitfield into this land. And my hearing of his preaching in Philadelphia, like one of the old apostles and many thousands flocking to hear him preach the gospel and great numbers were converted to Christ. I felt the spirit of God drawing me by conviction, long to see and hear him and wished he would come this way. And so Whitfield comes into the countryside. Uh, this farmer gets along with his wife. They get their old horse out. She'll ride on the horse for a while. And then he'll ride on the horse. Everybody's going to this place where Whitfield is preaching. And, it, and he goes on in his account and he says, and by the time we got closer to the event, all we saw was all these huge numbers of horses converging on this place out in the countryside. It was you know, bearing, as it said, these horses bearing their riders to hear about the Lord. Now, I don't know, something like that. I, I don't know if horses have that spirituality or not, but nonetheless, they were taking people to, 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 to hear Whitfield. And so this is what he uh, uh, he continues, we went down the stream. I heard no man speak a word all the way three miles, but everyone pressing forward in great haste. And when we got to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was three or four thousand of people assembled. We got off from our horses and shook off the dust and ministers were there coming to the meeting house. When I saw Mr. Whitfield come upon the scaffold, he looked almost angelical a young, slim, slender youth before some thousands of people with a bold and undaunted countenance. And my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he went along solemnized my mind and put me in trembling fear before he began to preach. 
For he looked as if he was clothed with the authority from the great God. And a sweet, solemn solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing and preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Now, we could go on and talk about this first great awakening because there's an awful lot of opposition to these folks as well. But there's a very wonderful historian. His name is Edwin Gausted. He argues that during this awakening, 35 to 44, probably 80% of the American colonists, as he said, fell into the bath. They heard the gospel, that this was one of the most unifying experiences that ever took place in the 13 colonies as God poured out, uh, God poured out his spirit. And he said, wow. That looks like God can work beyond the walls of this church. Can God do these things? Yes, he can. Now, what is some of the theology behind what took place here? And let me just say a few words about that, and then uh, we'll have some words of conclusion. Now, obviously, there's a theology that's motivating some of these people who are preachers, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, and others. And it was a very good theology, and Jonathan Edwards, one of the leading theologians, wrote many books on revival. And let me, if I may, just try to summarize some of the points he makes, because he, he saw from the Bible what the Word of God teaches about the topic, but also he had the experience of seeing God work in power. So here are some, some of the points that he makes in a sort of a quick summary. Number one, uh, he, Edwards, as some of you know, thought that when you do preach, you need to preach about hell. That was one of the themes that he would preach. And some of us aren't used to hearing people talk about that, but Edwards would say, uh, you do the person the greatest favor if you tell them about what they may be up, up against and what they may be experiencing. I, over the years when I've been teaching at Trinity, I go into this in much more detail and I say this to some of the students. I say, you, students, you folks don't really believe in hell, do you? Ooh. <laughs> You know, don't you know who you'd be talking to? You know, we're trying and so forth. I, I, I said, well, if you really believe in hell, why are you sitting in this class? And then they said, well, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? And the point is, certain of these folks in the 18th century were so burdened by the fact that people were lost that they wanted to go out in the streets and they wanted to tell people about the Lord. And I think, you know, one of the things that comes through in some of the, the theology of these folks is that one of the reasons they're preaching the gospel is they really do believe that folks are lost. I, I say that's something to, you know, to consider. I've had to ponder that myself. Uh, over the years, I, I remember a student came back and he said he was a church planner. And, and I said, well, how'd that happen? He said, happened in your class. I said, what? He said, do you remember when you talked about hell and you said, do you folks actually believe in it? And you were pushing us. I said, yeah, I guess I did that. He said, well, I, I, had to, I went home and I wondered whether or not I actually believe people were lost apart from Christ. And I determined that they were and I was, going to, I was going to plant churches. And that's what I've done for my life because people are really lost. And see, that's the key point of all this. We were hearing about grace this morning people and sin. That's, that's real stuff. So these people are going to emphasize people, folks being lost. A second point is that they are going to say, as Edwards does, that the Bible gives us criteria for recognizing when God is working in great power. In other words, you can imagine when God is at work, there will be opposition and people will come and say, well, you know, some folks are touched up in their heads. They're appealing to the emotions. How do you distinguish between what is really the work of God and what isn't the work of God? May I just briefly give you the five criteria that Edwards sets up 
for recognizing the Spirit of God. And hopefully this will be of, of some interest to you. Edwards argues that in point of fact, there are at least five traits of the work of the Spirit of God. Number one, if you're trying to evaluate the life of this church or Trinity or anywhere else, these are good criteria to keep in mind. Number one, if, if something is the work of the Spirit of God, Christ Jesus is lifted up. Christ Jesus is lifted up. It's not the preacher, not the church. It's Christ Jesus is lifted up. That's one sign of the work of the Spirit of God. And Edwards gives appropriate uh, biblical references uh, uh, for that. Mark 2, if, if the Holy Spirit is at work. When the Spirit is at work, operates against the interest of Satan's kingdom. In other words, when the Spirit of God is at work, there's going to be a clash. Because the Spirit of God is going to go after the strongholds of the evil one. So if you happen to be involved in a work where God is at, is at work, there's going to be opposition. There really will be. And that, nonetheless, from the point of view of Edwards, is a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work. Number three, if the Holy Spirit is operative, people will have a higher regard for Holy Scripture. In other words, and I think, I'm saying this to myself, you know, this, sometimes if you, those of you who ever spoken, you say stuff, you say, oh, you hypocrite. You know, it's hard to get the words out because I have to talk to myself about this one. Uh, the point, if the Holy Spirit is operative, there'll be a greater regard for the Holy, Holy Scriptures. When God is at work in people's lives, they will love Scripture. If in point of fact, you know, we don't have much love for Scripture to be in it, boy, just, that's, that's not a good sign. I remember when I was a kid, you know, we were told we were supposed to have quiet time. And I didn't know what that was and so forth. And we were supposed to do all this sort of stuff. And I didn't know, I don't know what anybody said really to me, and I should have understood that when the Holy Spirit is at work, people will want to read Scripture. And that's a sign that God is at work in their lives. Number four, if the Holy Spirit is at work, people will be able to discern more easily between truth and error. That is to say, says Edwards, everything won't be in grace. You know what's bad and you know what's good because the Bible says in point of fact what those things are. And then five, if the Holy Spirit is operative, a spirit of love to God in men will develop that this is a sure sign of the Holy Spirit is at work. In other words, that people will have love for their brothers and sisters in the Lord. If in point of fact you have a situation where you can be as orthodox as sin, which is interesting uh, you can be very orthodox but if people don't care for each other if they don't love each other then that's not necessarily a sign that the work of the Holy Spirit is there and, and, and when I read this list of Edwards for the first time I thought wow what a wonderful set of points to keep in mind when we're thinking about our own lives about life of the church and so forth because I would think that we would want to be here at this church where the Holy Spirit is obviously at work, but we would want to be living lives where the Holy Spirit is operative. We, these would be criteria that would be significant to us. I remember once a long time ago, I heard a speaker up at Camp of the Woods, this is Northern New York, say, he's thinking about his life. He said, I want to be, I want to be working in a place where the Holy Spirit's at work. That's, that's part of my job description you know, when I look, look at where I'm headed. That's what I want to be doing. Now, to be sure, there's sometimes we have times of dryness of soul and there's persecution, but just to be concerned about this issue. So Edwards gives those particular pieces of advice. Then the question comes up as Edwards talks about things. The question comes up, uh, can we do anything 
to, I don't know how to say this, sort of provoke God to bring an awakening. Now, some of you, I know a lot of you are reformed in theology. And so, you'll say to yourself, I know what Edwards is going to say about this. God indicates that the Holy Spirit comes when the Holy Spirit wants to come through seasons of mercy. And that's exactly what Edwards says. God, the Holy Spirit, moves when he wants to do so. So from that point of view, then the question is sort of seems mute as to whether we can do anything to, to bring the Lord to have an awakening. Edwards is not going to be satisfied with the no answer, though. He's, he's going to give these suggestions. Number one, pray, says Edwards. When men are in a place humble before God, seeking him, God seems to be more ready to help, to give proper convictions, to help against temptations, and let in divine light. As we were studying the history of revivals, always, 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 people have been praying before awakenings come. Prayer is absolutely the heart. And that's so interesting reading the pastor's word for today in, in the bulletin. Prayer is at the heart of God at work, being at, at work. A second thing that Edward says is what we need to do is to be directed to sacrifice everything to our eternal interest and that we make this a serious commitment that we are going to pray for our own selves and for the people around us. Then Edwards gives some other sorts of counsel that are very intriguing. He says, uh, what do we do if we're involved in awakening and there are people who don't like it? Why... Why don't they like awakenings? And I have to tell you, a lot of Christians really wouldn't want to, you need to know this, a lot of Christians wouldn't want to have an awakening if God worked some great power. You say, well, well why is that? Well, first of all, it, it, God might really do something in our own lives. And it's just possible that we sort of lose control, that we might actually have to follow Christ more carefully, and so forth. So, one of the things that we've discovered over the time is that when you talk about this topic, it's not necessarily uh, non-Christians who might not want to hear about an awakening. It's some Christians who don't. Edwards knows that. And this is what he says as to why people don't want to hear about this topic. He calls call them the non-promoters. When a people oppose Christ in the work of his Holy Spirit, it is because it touches them in something that is dear to their own carnal hearts and because they see the tendency of it to cross their pride and to deprive them of the objects of their lust. Worried about what would happen if God really worked on power. Have you ever noticed that when you're, out, if, maybe you folks don't have this happen, but when you're out of fellowship with the Lord, you don't want to be around people who are really walking with the Lord? I was walking across campus one day, and a student came up and he hit me in the back. And he said, Dr. Woodbridge, isn't Jesus Christ wonderful? I said, yes, he is. Now, I was out of fellowship with the Lord, but I taught at Trinity. I gave the right response. Yes, he is. But I didn't feel that way because I was out of fellowship with the Lord. And so when a person is out of fellowship with the Lord, they sometimes really don't want to, as I was, they don't really want to be around people who are talking about how wonderful Jesus is. I mean, that just doesn't go down. And Edwards knew that. So, he says the non-promoters, uh, that's going to be their problem. What's going to be the problem for the promoters? I pray that God will pour out His Spirit on this church. I pray that He will. But what happens when God 
does that, what Edward says is the biggest hurdle, the biggest plug to the work of the God, once it gets started, stopping is spiritual pride. That people start to get prideful about the fact that they are walking with the Lord. Edwards gives the example of a young man who was a very good preacher. Edwards says, when he first started preaching, he preached Paul. After a while, he thought he was Paul. And so forth. <laughs> then Edwards goes on. And he says, this is how insidious pride is. He says, pride is the first enemy that comes into the world. And it's the last one to leave. And this is what he says happens. Spiritual pride is apt to suspect others. Whereas a humble heart is most jealous of himself. He is so suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. The spiritually proud person is apt to find fault with other saints, that they are low in grace, and to be much in observing how cold and dead they be, and crying out of them for it, and to be quick to discern and take notice of their deficiencies. But the eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart and is concerned about it that he is not apt to be very busy with others' hearts. He complains most of himself and cries out of his own coldness and lowness of grace and is apt to esteem others better than himself. In my own experience, you know, I've taught for a number of years at Trinity. I have to tell you that when uh, you run into people who... Uh, who really are walking humbly, boy, is that very attractive. They are not rooting for themselves. They're thinking of others as better than themselves. They're pretty, uh, pretty careful on what, how they talk about things and so forth. And those sorts of people, because they, they, they reach out to others, they can bring others together, and the Holy Spirit seems to be able to, 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 to work in, in, in great power. If you come to Trinity, there's a picture up near the chapel of a man whose name is Dr. Kenneth Concert. He was one of the founders of the Trinity, and he was like, like second father to me. And that man, he was so, so gracious, so, so kind. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just amazing. And the attractiveness of somebody who has the Holy Spirit in them, who's humble, who's careful what they say and so forth, uh, that is really attractive, at least it was to this young man when I, when I was a young man, uh, which is a while ago, so forth. Last point, some, some concluding points. What might this all, all mean to us? Let me give you one more story and then we'll really summarize this up. The point might be raised. Uh, uh, does God only pour out his spirit in areas that have been Christian? That's sometimes an argument that people make. If you look at the United States, and obviously we're not going to do, do this, there's not going to only be this first great awakening. There's going to be a second great awakening. And then, I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite, wake, uh, favorite awakenings, mm-hmm. but my favorite one is the 1857-1858 awakening, which sweeps all through, throughout the United States, all through Illinois, prayer meetings in Illinois. Uh, hundred colleges have revivals. This awakening is not hardly known about at all. Dwight L. Moody w- would have been present there. And for him, he said, I've always wanted to see God do this once again with, with power. But what about... What about elsewhere? Uh, we d- this is not hawking a book, but uh, we, we did this little book trying to summarize these things. And in this book, we have a story of, uh, of what happened in Korea. Uh, in Korea, non-Christian country, Christians had been working there in the 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, Presbyterians had been there. Uh, Catholics had been before there. That Methodists had been there. 
there was a, there was a medical missionary whose, whose name was uh, Hardy. And Hardy uh, was asked to lead a Bible study. And he, he said, okay, I'll do that. You know, the missionaries do that sort of thing. So guess what passage he picked? He picked Luke 11, the very passage that we read today. And he, as he read that passage, I don't know if you remember, you get to verse, you get to verse 13. It dawned on him that he had not been asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. And he, he will say, he said, you know what? I've been a Christian for many years. I've done my best as a medical missionary here in Korea. But I have to say, I've been doing this in the arm of the flesh. I have been fighting this out. I've been doing all these things. And he said, when I, he said, when I read Luke 11:13, and asked for the power of the Holy Spirit in my own life, and I confessed that I had been living not with the Holy Spirit, but with the arm of the flesh, there are some Koreans, some of the people we've been ministering to, they heard me say that. They couldn't believe that an Anglo, that an Anglo could make a confession like that. And from their point of view, and from the point of view of people who studied this, from his confession, out went the, what becomes known as the Korean Awakening. And that Korean Awakening swept through Korea. That's the reason we now have, in, in South Korea at least, 30% of the population are evangelicals because of the remarkable awakening that went, went through the country as God poured out his spirit. And the Koreans said, you know, we need to do that as well. We new believers, we want to trust in the Holy Spirit. And they confessed and God poured out his spirit in, in a remarkable way. What we're talking about then briefly is this, that God has worked in great power. I hope these, these, these stories, you know, are encouraging to you and maybe, maybe even reflect. And you know, I don't know your heart and I just know mine. That if there is a disjunction between your actual theology and so forth, and it's understandable because we haven't seen God do these things in our own lifetimes. Maybe, maybe, just to go back into Scripture and start reading again about God's mighty works. And maybe, maybe, if you've never done it before, to get a hold of George Whitfield's uh, writings about the First Great Awakening, to read John Wesley, to, to, to read even, even uh, Billy Graham's autobiography, where God is a, a great work. This is a type of reading fair that will nurture your heart. You say, how do you describe what, what it does theologically? I don't know. I've been teaching, a, I teach a DMN class on occasion on, on revivals. And we do what we're doing here, and there are pastors there. I don't know theologically what it is. That maybe it's God's, God uses these stories because they're God's people, and people are challenged by seeing God at work. I don't know exactly theologically how it works. But it really does work, as one sees and has a wider vision. Last point. You say, well, you know what? This is all nice and good. I mean, it's sort of interesting, actually. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it's sort of interesting. The trouble is, uh, I don't know if other people in this church are interested in this. You say, Mr. Woodward, you shouldn't say that. Why, why, why do you say that? Because I've been in a few churches. And, and as, as was said, I feel licensed to say it because of what he wrote there. One of the hardest things for people to do in churches is to pray. 
and so forth. It really is. As Billy Graham says, he was asked once, what's the toughest thing in his life? He says to be prayed up. It's to be prayed up. And so on occasion, it's really difficult to pray. But if you feel so motivated, might I suggest to you that just to find one other person or, or two other people, just a small group, even if it's not the whole church, it would be great as the whole church, but just one or two other people. Uh, you know, there's a passage where Jesus says, and if uh, 77 people are gathered in my name, I will hear them. No, no, I, I got that wrong. That's the that's a, that's a wrong version. If it's, uh, no, it's 65. It turns out it's two or three. And, and if, if you start working the history of revivals, you'll find out that one individual sometimes got a, ver- got a vision to pray for the country, got a vision to pray for the church. And the other point I would just make in, in, in passing too is that sometimes when they prayed, they, they will pray, but then they actually engaged in persistent prayer. Because if you look at that passage again, it's persistent prayer. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a vision to pray for something. And I do. Nothing happens. Say, well, that's it. That wasn't God's will. May I assure you, persistent prayer, even if year after year, and, 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 and beseech the Lord. When you, when you, again, pardon me for being excited about this topic, but when you read, read people who have been used of the Lord, sometimes they will, it, it, it sounds almost egregiously over the top, they will, uh, they will implore the Lord to pour out His Spirit for, for His people. And it's not for their glory, the people's glory. It's not for the prayer's glory, but it's for the Lord's glory. That the Lord might demonstrate Himself to the people at large, and so many people will come to know him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everybody here. Thank you for this, this wonderful church. We pray your blessing upon the folks here. We pray that for, for, for any of us who struggle with this issue of a potential disconnect between our actionable theology and our, our formal theology, we pray that through your Holy Spirit that that gap might be closed. And then help us, Lord, to realize that if we even think along these lines, we're going to be a major target for the evil one because we're in gear. And so we ask them too, as is prayed earlier in that passage, the Lord's Prayer, that you will protect us because then we really do get into trouble because we are, want to serve you well and we don't have the means to do it on our own. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.